0: American Notes, Chapter Thirteen This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Phillipone American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter Thirteen: A Jaunt to the Looking Glass Prairie and Back I may premise that the word prairie is variously pronounced -er, PERER, PERERER, PERORER. The latter mode of pronunciation is perhaps the most in favour. We were fourteen in all, and all young men. Indeed, it is a singular, though very natural, feature in the society of these distant settlements that it is mainly composed of adventurous persons in the prime of life, and has very few grey heads among it. There were no ladies, the trip being a fatiguing one, and we were to start at five o'clock in the morning punctually.' I was called at four that I might be certain of keeping nobody waiting, and having got some bread and milk for breakfast, threw up the window and looked down into the street, expecting to see the whole party busily astir, and great preparations going on below. But as everything was very quiet, and the street presented that hopeless aspect with which five o'clock in the morning is familiar elsewhere, I deemed it as well to go to bed again and went accordingly. I woke again at seven o'clock, and by that time the party had assembled, and were gathered round one light carriage with a very stout axle-tree, one something on wheels like an amateur carrier's cart, one double phaeton of great antiquity and unearthly construction, one gig with a great hole in its back and a broken head, and one rider on horseback who was to go on before.' I got into the first coach with three companions, the rest bestowed themselves in the other vehicles, two large baskets were made fast to the lightest, two large stone jars, in wicker cases technically known as demijohns, were consigned to the least rowdy of the party for safe-keeping, and the procession moved off to the ferry-boat, in which it was to cross the river bodily men, horses, carriages, and all, as the manner in these parts is.' We got over the river in due course, and mustered again before a little wooden box on wheels hove down all aslant in a morass with merchant tailor painted in very large letters over the door. Having settled the order for proceeding, and the road to be taken, we started off once more and began to make our way through an ill-favoured black hollow called, less expressively, the American Bottom. The previous day had been, not to say hot, for the term is weak and lukewarm in its power of conveying an idea of the temperature. The town had been on fire in a blaze. But at night it had come on to rain in torrents, and all night long it had rained without cessation. We had a pair of very strong horses, but travelled at the rate of little more than a couple of miles an hour through one unbroken slough of black mud and water— It had no variety but in depth. Now it was only half over the wheels, now it hid the axle-tree, and now the coach sank down in it almost to the windows. The air resounded in all directions with the loud chirping of the frogs, who, with the pigs, a coarse ugly breed, as unwholesome-looking as though they were the spontaneous growth of a country, had the whole scene to themselves. Here and there we passed a log-hut but the wretched cabins were wide apart and thinly scattered, for though the soil is very rich in this place, few people can exist in such a deadly atmosphere. On either side of the track, if it deserves the name, was the thick bush, and everywhere was stagnant, slimy, rotten, filthy water. As it is the custom in these parts to give a horse a gallon or so of cold water whenever he is in a foam with heat, we halted for that purpose at a log inn in the wood, far removed from any other residence. It consisted of one room, bare-roofed and bare-walled, of course, with a loft above. The ministering priest was a swarthy young savage in a shirt of cotton-print-like bed furniture and a pair of ragged trousers. There were a couple of young boys, too, nearly naked, lying idle by the well, and they and he and the traveller at the inn turned out to look at us. The traveller was an old man, with a grey gristly beard two inches long, a shaggy moustache of the same hue, and enormous eyebrows, which almost obscured his lazy, semi-drunken glance, as he stood regarding us with folded arms, poising himself alternately upon his toes and heels. On being addressed by one of the party, he drew nearer and said, rubbing his chin, which scraped under his horny hand like fresh gravel beneath a nailed shoe, that he was from Delaware, and had lately bought a farm down there, pointing into one of the marshes where the stunted trees were thickest. He was going, he added, to St. Louis to fetch his family, whom he had left behind, but he seemed in no great hurry to bring on these encumbrances, for when we moved away he loitered back into the cabin and was plainly bent on stopping there so long as his money lasted. He was a great politician, of course, and explained his opinions at some length to one of our company but I only remember that he concluded with two sentiments, one of which was somebody ever," and the other blast everybody else, which is by no means a bad abstract of the general creed in these matters. When the horses were swollen out to about twice their natural dimensions, there seems to be an idea here that this kind of inflation improves their going, we went forward again, through mud and mire and damp and festering heat and brake and bush, "'attended always by the music of the frogs and pigs, "'until nearly noon, when we halted at a place called Belleville. "'Belleville was a small collection of wooden houses, "'huddled together in the very heat of the bush and swamp. "'Many of them had singularly bright doors of red and yellow, "'for the place had been lately visited by a travelling painter, "'who got along, as I was told, by eating his way. "'The criminal court was sitting,' and was at that moment trying some criminals for horse-stealing, with whom it would most likely go hard, for livestock of all kinds being necessarily very much exposed in the woods is held by the community in rather higher value than human life, and for this reason juries generally make a point of finding all men indicted for cattle-stealing guilty whether or no. The horses belonging to the bar, the judge and witnesses, were tied to temporary racks set up roughly in the road, by which it is to be understood a forest path nearly knee deep in mud and slime. There was an hotel in this place, which, like all hotels in America, had its large dining room for the public table. It was an odd, shambling, low roofed outhouse, half cowshed and half kitchen, with a coarse brown canvas tablecloth, and tin sconces stuck against the walls to hold candles at supper time the horseman had gone forward to have coffee and some eatables prepared and they were by this time nearly ready he had ordered wheat bread and chicken fixings in preference to corn bread and common doings the latter kind of rejection includes only pork and bacon the former comprehends broiled ham, sausages, veal cutlets, steaks, and such other viands of that nature as may be supposed, by a tolerably wide poetical construction, to fix a chicken comfortably in the digestive organs of any lady or gentleman. On one of the door-posts at this inn was a tin plate, whereon was inscribed in characters of gold, Dr. Crocus, and on a sheet of paper, pasted up by the side of this plate, was a written announcement that Dr. Crocus would that evening deliver a lecture on phrenology for the benefit of the Belleville public at a charge for admission of so much a head. Straying upstairs during the preparation of the chicken fixings, I happened to pass the doctor's chamber, and as the door stood wide open and the room was empty, I made bold to peep in. It was a bare, unfurnished, comfortless room, with an unframed portrait hanging up at the head of the bed, a likeness i take it of the doctor for the forehead was fully displayed and great stress was laid by the artist upon its phrenological developments the bed itself was covered with an odd patchwork counterpane the room was destitute of carpet or of curtain There was a damp fireplace without any stove, full of wood ashes, a chair and a very small table, and on the last-named piece of furniture was displayed in great array the doctor's library, consisting of some half-dozen greasy old books. Now it certainly looked about the last apartment on the whole earth out of which any man would be likely to get anything to do him good, but the door, as I have said, stood coaxingly open, and plainly said, in conjunction with the chair and portrait, the table and the books, "'Walk in, gentlemen, walk in. Don't be ill, gentlemen, when you may be well in no time. "'Dr. Crocus is here, gentlemen, the celebrated Dr. Crocus. "'Dr. Crocus has come all this way to cure you, gentlemen. "'If you haven't heard of Dr. Crocus, it's your fault, gentlemen, "'who live a little way out of the world here, not Dr. Crocus's. "'Walk in, gentlemen, walk in.' "'In the passage below, when I went downstairs again, was Dr. Crocus himself.' a crowd had flocked in from the courthouse and a voice from among them called out to the landlord colonel introduce dr crocus mr dickens says the colonel dr crocus upon which dr crocus who was a tall fine-looking scotchman but rather fierce and warlike in appearance for a professor of the peaceful art of healing bursts out to the concourse with his right arm extended and his chest thrown out as far as it will possibly come and says your countryman sir Whereupon Dr. Crocus and I shake hands, and Dr. Crocus looks as if I didn't by any means realize his expectations, which, in a linen blouse and a great straw hat, with a green ribbon and no gloves, and my face and nose profusely ornamented with the stings of mosquitoes and the bites of bugs, it is very likely I did not. "'Long in these parts, sir,' says I. Three or four months, sir,' says the doctor. "'Do you think of soon returning to the old country?' says I." Dr. Crocus makes no verbal answer, but gives me an imploring look which says so plainly, Will you ask me that again a little louder, if you please, that I repeat the question. Think of soon returning to the old country, sir, repeats the doctor. To the old country, I rejoin. Dr. Crocus looks round upon the crowd to observe the effect he produces, rubs his hands, and says in a very loud voice, Not yet a while, sir, not yet. You won't catch me at that just yet, sir. "'I'm a little too fond for freedom for that, sir. Ha-ha! <laughs> "'It's not so easy for a man to tear himself from a free country such as this, sir. Ha-ha! <laughs> "'No, no, ha-ha! <laughs> None of that till one's obliged to do it, sir. No, no!' "'As Dr. Crocus says these latter words, he shakes his head knowingly and laughs again.' Many of the bystanders shake their heads in concert with the doctor, and laugh too, and look at each other as much to say, a pretty bright and first-rate sort of chap is Crocus, and, unless I am very much mistaken, a good many people went to the lecture that night who never thought about phrenology or about Dr. Crocus either in all their lives before.' From Belleville we went on to the same desolate kind of waste, and constantly attended, without the interval of a moment, by the same music, until at three o'clock in the afternoon we halted once more at a village called Lebanon to inflate the horses again, and give them some corn besides, of which they stood much in need. Pending this ceremony I walked into the village, where I met a full-sized dwelling-house coming downhill at a round trot drawn by a score or more of oxen the public-house was so very clean and good a one that the managers of the jaunt resolved to return to it and put up there for the night if possible this course decided on and the horses being well refreshed we again pushed forward and came upon the prairie at sunset it will be difficult to say why or how though it was possibly from having heard and read so much about it but the effect on me was disappointment looking towards the setting sun There lay stretched out before my view a vast expanse of level ground, unbroken save by one thin line of trees, which scarcely amounted to a scratch upon the great blank until it met the glowing sky wherein it seemed to dip, mingling with its rich colours and mellowing in its distant blue. There it lay, a tranquil sea or lake without water, if such a simile be admissible, with the day going down upon it, a few birds wheeling here and there, and solitude and silence reigning paramount around. But the grass was not yet high. There were bare black patches on the ground, and the few wild flowers that the eye could see were poor and scanty. Great as the picture was, its very flatness and extent which left nothing to the imagination tamed it down and cramped its interest. I felt little of that sense of freedom and exhilaration which a Scottish heath inspires, or even our English downs awaken. It was lonely and wild, but oppressive in its barren monotony. I felt that in travelling the prairies I could never abandon myself to the scene, forgetful of all else, as I should do instinctively were the heather underneath my feet, or an iron-bound coast beyond, but should often glance towards the distant and frequently receding line of the horizon and wish it gained and passed.' it is not a scene to be forgotten but it is scarcely one i think at all events as i saw it to remember with much pleasure or to covet the looking on again in after life we encamped near a solitary log-house for the sake of its water and dined upon the plain the baskets containing roast fowls buffalo's tongue an exquisite dainty by the way ham bread cheese and butter biscuits champagne sherry lemons and sugar for punch and abundance of rough ice. The meal was delicious, and the entertainers were the soul of kindness and good humour. I have often recalled that cheerful party to my pleasant recollection since, and shall not easily forget in junketing nearer home with friends of older date my boon-companions on the prairie. Returning to Lebanon that night, we lay at the little inn at which we had halted in the afternoon in point of cleanliness and comfort it would have suffered by no comparison with any english alehouse of a homely kind in england rising at five o'clock next morning i took a walk about the village none of the houses were strolling about to-day but it was early for them yet perhaps and then amused myself by lounging in a kind of farmyard behind the tavern, of which the leading features were a strange jumble of rough sheds for stables, a rude colonnade built as a cool place of summer resort, a deep well, a great earthen mound for keeping vegetables in in time, and a pigeon-house whose little apertures looked, as they do in all pigeon-houses, very much too small for the admission of the plump and swelling-breasted birds who were strutting about it, Though they tried to get in never so hard that interest exhausted i took a survey of the inn's two parlours which were decorated with coloured prints of washington and president madison and of a white-faced young lady much speckled by the flies who held up her gold neck-chain for the admiration of the spectator and informed all admiring comers that she was just seventeen though i should have thought her older in the best room were two oil portraits of the kit-kat size representing the landlord and his infant son, both looking as bold as lions and staring out of the canvas with an intensity that would have been cheap at any price. They were painted, I think, by the artist who had touched up the Belleville doors with red and gold, for I seemed to recognize his style immediately. After breakfast we started to return by a different way from that which we had taken yesterday, and coming up at ten o'clock with an encampment of German immigrants carrying their goods in carts who had made a rousing fire which they were just quitting, stopped there to refresh. And very pleasant the fire was, for hot though it had been yesterday, it was quite cold today, and the wind blew keenly. Looming in the distance as we rode along was another of the ancient Indian burial-places called the Monk's Mound, in memory of a body of fanatics of the Order of La Trappe, who founded a desolate convent there many years ago, when there were no settlers within a thousand miles, and were all swept off by the pernicious climate in which lamentable fatality few rational people will suppose, perhaps, that society experienced any very severe deprivation. The track of today had the same features as the track of yesterday. There was the swamp, the bush, and the perpetual chorus of frogs, the rank unseemly growth, the unwholesome streaming earth. Here and there, and frequently too, we encountered a solitary broken-down wagon full of some new settlers' goods. It was a pitiful sight to see one of these vehicles deep in the mire, the axle-tree broken, the wheel lying idly by its side, the man gone miles away to look for assistance, the woman seated among their wandering household gods with a baby at her breast, a picture of forlorn, dejected patience, the team of oxen crouching down mournfully in the mud and breathing forth such clouds of vapour from their mouths and nostrils that all the damp mist and fog around seemed to have come directly from them in due time we mustered once again before the merchant tailors and having done so crossed over to the city in the ferry-boat passing on the way a spot called bloody island the duelling ground of st louis and so designated in honour of the last fatal combat fought there which was with pistols breast to breast Both combatants fell dead upon the ground, and possibly some rational people may think of them, as of the gloomy madmen of the Monk's Mound, that they were no great loss to the community. End of chapter 13